الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله Uh, we'd like to begin with our quick or short review of the hadith which we took last week from the Sharh of Umdut al-Ahkam, Taysir al-Alam, my Shaykh Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman ibn Salih Ali Bassam, Hafizahullah, may Allah protect and preserve him. In the hadith which we took in the last uh, lecture, hadith number 85, the hadith of Al-Bara ibn Azib radiallahu anhuma, he said, Ramaktu as-salata ma'a Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, fawajadtu قيامه فرقعته فاعتداله بعد ركوعه فسجدته فجلسته بين السجدتين فسجدته فجلسته ما بين التسليم والانصراف قريبا من السواء البراء بن عازب May Allah be pleased with him, his father. He said that I paid careful attention, or I looked carefully at the salat with the Prophet ﷺ, and I found that his qiyam or standing, and his ruku, and his standing after ruku, and his prostration, and his sitting between the two prostrations, and his prostration again, the second prostration, and his sitting. Uh, between the taslim, the completion of the salat with assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and his leaving or going away from the prayer all of these positions were nearly equal or similar it is clarified further in the, in the riwayah in a riwayah of al-Bukhari rahimahullah in which it is reported that Al-Bara radiallahu anhu said Ma khala al-qiyam wal-qurud qariban min al-sawam Yani that all of these positions the length of time that the Prophet sallallahu remaining them was similar or almost equal except with the exception of al-qiyam and al-qurud that is his standing for the recitation of Quran and his sitting for the tashahud particularly the last tashahud uh, in this hadith, the Shaykh mentioned a number of rulings from amongst them uh, is that it is preferable for the ruku and the standing after one stands up from ruku and the prostration and the sitting up after prostration that they should be nearly equal in length and none of them should be much 
longer than another of them. Yani they should all be approximately the same length of time. And as for the standing, Al-Qiyam for reading of Qur'an and the sitting Al-Julus and for the recitation of At-Tashahud Al-Akhir the last Tashahud in the last Raka'ah of the prayer they should be longer yeah, and longer than the other positions in the prayer then he says that in general overall the Salat should be and a proportionate, every position in the prayer should be proportionate to other positions uh, so that the length of recitation should be appropriate or suitable or proportionate for example to the ruku, bowing or sujood, prostration and if the recitation of Quran was very very long then the bowing and prostration should also be longer than they normally are. And if the recitation in Quran is shortened than the normal recitation, then the ruku, bowing, and sujood, prostration should also be shortened proportionately. Then he says that uh, it is also confirmed and established that there is a pause or a state of calmness that a person is required to attend to, and that is when the person stands up after ruku and when the person sits up after sajda and this is something that unfortunately has been lost for many of the Muslims including the Imams we notice that when people rise up from ruku they stand up and immediately go to sajda and this is contrary to the sunnah where the person should pause calmly uh, for some time before going to the next position and so also between the two prostrations when one sits up between them. Also, uh, he mentions that some claimed that rising up from ruku, the standing position of the rising from ruku is a minor pillar of the salat because there's no, it has not been legislated in the sunnah for any repetition of tasbihat such as subhana rabbi al-ala or subhana rabbi al-azim as is done in the prostration and sitting position uh, but the Shaykh says that this analogy or comparison is incorrect uh, because the text of hadith and the sunnah of the Prophet was established makes us to know that the zikr or the words of remembrance that have been legislated in this standing position after ruku not only is the zikr uh, established in the sunnah but that zikr which is established is longer than what is mentioned for ruku and for sujood yani when one stands up after ruku or after bowing uh, and these are the main points that the shaykh mentions uh, the ahkam or the rulings from this hadith and then he discusses the fact that some uh, yani scholars differed concerning how all of the positions of the prayer could be equal and uh, as we mentioned already the narration one of the narrations in Bukhari which makes an exception for the standing for recitation and the sitting for tashahud that these two positions are an exception from the equality of duration or length of the positions in the prayer in any case according to the other narrations some of the scholars try to explain how they are equal 
And some of them said that this was something that happened occasionally, that the Prophet ﷺ made all of the positions equal, including the standing recitation of Qur'an and sitting for tashahud. And others said that, um, in fact, what it was, was that sometimes he shortened the longer portions of the prayer to make them short like the shorter portions, or he lengthened the shorter portions to make them longer like the longer portions in order to make them equal. And perhaps the correct opinion is what has been stated by the Shaykh Abdullah, uh, and that is also the opinion of scholars before him, including Ibn Qayyim, uh, and it is that the proportionateness in the prayer is that no doubt the qiyam for recitation of Qur'an was longer and so also the sitting for tashahud was longer than the other uh, uh, acts in the prayer by far they were longer but they said that the meaning here is that when he used to lengthen that reading longer than he normally did then he would also lengthen the shorter portions such as the ruku and sujood and so on. He would also lengthen them proportionately or if he shortened the recitation of Quran which was normally long, if he shortened it then to some extent he would also shorten the shorter portions of the prayer such as bowing and prostration proportionately. This is the opinion of Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah and Shaykh Abdullah uh, Ali Bassam hafidhullah. The second hadith which we took uh, hadith number 86 is the hadith of Thabit Al-Bunani from Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu he said uh, that Anas ibn Malik said inni la'alu an usalli bikum kama kana rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yusalli or in some of the narrations he said kama ra'aytu an nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yusalli bina yani that I will perform the prayer uh, or perform the prayer as I saw or as the Messenger of Allah sallallahu used to perform the prayer, leading us in the prayer, without falling short in any way, and making every, every effort to make that prayer complete and perfect as I saw the Prophet sallallahu doing it. Uh, and then Thabit, the narrator from Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu said, فَكَانَ أَنَسْ يَسْمَعَ شَيْئًا لَا أَرَاكُمْ تَسْمَعُونَهُ that I saw Anas doing something or he used to do something that I don't see you, yani the people today, doing. And what he used to do, he said, كَانَ إِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ الْرُقُوءِ Whenever he used to raise his head from الْرُقُوءِ انْقَصَبَ قَائِمًا وَقَامَ yani He used to stand up and straighten his back حَتَّى يَقُولُ الْقَائِلِ قَدْ نَسِيَ Until someone would imagine or think and they would say that perhaps he has forgotten that he is supposed to go to sajda. وَإِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ السَّجْدَةِ And if he raised his head up from the prostration, يعني the sitting in between two prostrations, مَكَثَ حَتَّى يَقُولُ الْقَالِ قَدْ And he would sit in that position between two prostrations, which people today normally don't even sit for one moment. They sit up from prostration and immediately, sometimes even before sitting up completely, go back to the second prostration. But he, Anas, radiallahu anhu, was demonstrating to them the prayer of the Prophet wasallam, and he sat for such a long time that perhaps people uh, imagined that he had forgotten the next prostration. Uh, so here in this uh, hadith there is a clear indication of how long the Prophet ﷺ used to stand up in Qiyam after rising up from bowing from Ruku'ah and how long he used to sit in between the two prostrations when he used to sit up between one prostration and the next.
from this hadith the Shaykh mentions just one point that in this hadith is a proof that it is legislated to make the Qiyam standing after Ruku long and to make the sitting uh, after a sujood long and that this was the action or the practice of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam also hadith number 87 which we took last week is reported from Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu he said ما صليت وراء إمام قط أخف صلاة ولا أتم صلاة من النبي أو من رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم that I haven't prayed behind any imam of all the people that I have prayed behind uh, whose prayer was lighter or briefer than the prayer of the Prophet وسلم, and at the same time more perfect and he didn't find anyone performing a prayer as brief as the Prophet وسلم's prayer was while at the same time performing that prayer, that prayer perfectly without leaving off anything or يعني, without any defect in that prayer uh, that he prayed behind the Prophet and then in one of the narrations it said but when the Prophet would hear a child crying, he used to reduce the prayer or shorten it for fear that it would be a trial for the mother when they heard their child crying that they might become anxious to attend to their child. So he used to shorten the prayer out of mercy for that parent, that mother, and also for that father in case the father is watching the children. From this hadith he mentioned three points. The first of them that the imam should perform the prayer briefly so that it would not be a hardship on the people who are following him while at the same time he should perform it perfectly without leaving off any part of the prayer or reducing its reward by causing any defect in it and he said the perfection of the prayer is in performing all of those things that are wajib and even those things which are mustahab or commendable without lengthening those things longer than is required and the lightning of the prayer is in uh, performing the obligatory parts of the prayer and perhaps performing some of the mustahab parts of the prayer and yani those things which are not absolutely necessary but perhaps some of them would be performed uh, or they would be shortened and he said also that the prayer of the Prophet وسلم, was the most, most perfect of prayer and he used to uh, and so anyone who prays they should uh, make every effort to uh, perform their prayer like the prayer of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam so that they will get the reward for both following him and also uh, the reward for the perfection of prayer and the last thing he mentioned that in this hadith is a proof of the permissibility that uh, a superior person or a preferable person or a person of higher status could be led in prayer by someone who is of lower status and here we mean particularly the status in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the last hadith that we took last week was the hadith number 88 the hadith of Abu Qilaba Abdullah ibn Zayd al-Jarmi al-Basri he said Ja'ana Malik ibn Hawairif رضي الله عنه في مسجدنا هذا he came to us in our masjid فقال إني لأصلي بكم وما أريد الصلاة 
he came to them and he said, I will perform a prayer for you, and it's not my intention to perform the prayer, yani the obligatory prayer, or a prayer for the purpose of worship, but the purpose of this prayer is for something else, and it is to show the people how the Messenger of Allah وسلم, performed his prayer, and to teach the people the correct manner of salat. The narrator said, I said, I said uh, to the one who narrated this hadith or reported this incident from Malik ibn Hawarif, How did he pray? And he said, Like our shaykh here, the one who leads us in prayer, And that shaykh, كان يجلس إذا رفع رأسه من السجود قبل أن ينهدو. يعني he used to uh, in the first rakah before getting up from the prostration before getting up or standing up for the second rakah he used to sit for some time briefly before standing up uh, and in another hadith we mentioned that's not mentioned by the author it says that the shaykh he used to complete the takbir and he used to raise his head from as-sajda, as-thaniya, the second prostration at that time he used to sit then he used to stand up i'tamada ala al-ard thumma qama yani he used to stand up by leaning on the earth and then and pushing himself up and there are other narrations which also clarify or describe yani exactly how he used to stand up uh, this hadith there is some ikhtilaf concerning it. Uh, it is in reference to what is referred to as Jalsatul Iftiraha or the sitting for rest. Uh, there is no difference of opinion amongst the scholars that it is permissible to do this sitting, but there is difference of opinion as to whether or not it is mustahab. Is it actually commendable or recommended or preferable to do so? The first opinion of those scholars who differed about this, the opinion of Al-Imam al-Shafi'i and Ahmed and Ishaq rahimahumullah, was that it is mustahab to do uh, this sitting. And the second opinion of those scholars who said that it is, must, it is not mustahab uh, from amongst the Sahaba, Umar, Ali, Ibn Mas'ud, Ibn Umar, Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhum ajma'een, and from amongst the scholars of hadith, Sufyan al-Thawri and Ishaq ibn Rahway, and from amongst the imams, Abu Hanifa, uh, Malik, and it is also one of the narrations, the more well-known narration report from Imam Ahmed, uh, that it is not mustahab to do so. Imam al-Tirmidhi said that after mentioning the hadith concerning this jilsat al-istiraha, he said that uh, the practice of the scholars, yani, to his knowledge, the practice of the scholars, yani, alayhi amal in the ahlul ilm, yani, that this was the practice of the people of knowledge, yani, to do this sitting. Another of the scholars, Abu Zinad, said, Tilka sunnah, that it is actually the sunnah. Uh, also, some of the scholars yani, were inclined towards the position that you may do it if there is a need to do so such as the person who is elderly or weak or sick and so on uh, and Ibn Qadamah was one of those scholars 
who mentioned such a similar a, sim- a statement similar to this in Al-Mughni and that this is sort of a way of combining the evidences and the opinions of both sides and that you may do it if there is a need otherwise it's not mustahab to do so in this hadith the shaykh mentions five points number one that it is mustahab to sit in this sitting jilsat al-istiraha he says that it is mustahab to do so if there is a need uh, well in fact perhaps the more correct opinion is that it is in fact sunnah as some of the scholars mention that so many of the companions of the Prophet wasallam, at least about ten of them mentioned this description as part of the manner of the prayer of the Prophet wasallam, and that is something that he did in his old age but as part of his actual regular manner of performing prayer and they would not have described it as a part of his regular prayer except that it was really from his sunnah to do so and Allah knows best uh, the second point he said that the time for this sitting is when the person is getting up from prostration standing up uh, from the first rakah for the second rakah or from the third rakah for the fourth rakah uh, and also he says that the intention behind this sitting is for a rest after the prostration and before standing and for this reason there is no takdir legislated for the sitting up yani from sajda to the sitting there is no takbir legislated for but the takbir is for standing up for the next rakah and also there is no dhikr mentioned for this sitting and in the course of that sitting there is no particular dhikr that is legislated number four he said that it is permissible uh, to do an act even an act of worship for the purpose of teaching the people so that in performing it or demonstrating it it would be more clear and stick to the minds of the people better and finally he said the permissibility uh, of doing an act of worship specifically for the purpose of teaching the people and that there is no uh, aspect of shirk in doing so because this act of teaching the people is an act of worship yani teaching the people is also ibadah so to do an act of worship with the intention of teaching not with the intention of it being an act of worship but the intention of demonstrating to the people then this teaching is also ibadah so there is no harm in doing so uh, tonight the hadith that we want to take inshallah the last hadith from kitab or from the bab sifat al-salat the description of the prayer uh, and hopefully inshallah we will complete them inshallah I think there are four hadith the first hadith hadith number 89 is dealing with the spreading of one's hands or spreading of one's arms in the position of prostration it is reported from Abdullah ibn Malik ibn Buhayna radiallahu anhu and the Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kana idha salla farraja bayna yadayhi hatta yabda'u bayadu ibtayhi Yani, he reported that the Prophet ﷺ, when he used to offer prayer, and he means here when he was in sajda, when he was in sujood, in prostration, that he used to separate his arms from his body so widely that the whiteness of his armpits were visible. That is, those who were behind him, they could actually see his armpits. If you are prostrating with your hands close together, no one can see underneath your arms. But the more you spread your arms, the more apparent and visible becomes the armpits 
and this was the manner of the Prophet ﷺ in making sajda, and it is in this manner, if you can see. Uh, and the palms should be flat on the ground the arms or the elbows raised up and the hands spread far to the side and far away from the side of the body the shaykh says the general meaning of this hadith that the prayer of the Prophet was a prayer in which uh, it was demonstrated that he had a desire for worshipping Allah he, it was something that was important to him and he was very active and energetic in his prayer not praying lazily and he used to give every part of the body or every member of the body its share of the ibadah by every part of the body doing something the hands used to do their part the knees, the feet, the forehead and so on every part and participating in the ibadah so when he used to prostrate, he used to spread his arms or his hands wide apart and due to the extent that he used to spread his hands, you could see the whiteness underneath his armpits. And all of this was an indication of his uh, energy uh, and activeness in the salat and his desire to worship Allah and his eagerness to be active in his uh, worshipping in, in, in this case in the salat and also that he would yani, be far removed from the condition or the manner of the lazy person when they pray by uh, closing up all the parts of the body together and just leaning yani, letting the body just lean over and yani, this is the manner of a person who is very very tired or lazy in the prayer you probably if you think about it when you are very tired think about how you pray uh, yani when you don't have energy and you may be yani worn out or tired the manner is different than when you are rested and strong uh, so this is the manner of the Prophet in sajda was an indication of his uh, energy and activeness and desire to worship uh, and his care and concern and attention that he gave to his salat and we should also give care and attention to our salat when we stand we should stand up straight and when we sit, we should sit up straight. And when we bow, we should bend our back straight. And when we prostrate, we should prostrate. Yeah, and spreading our arms, placing our, our, four, our palms flat on the ground, uh, putting our heels together and our feet, bending our toes, and doing everything in the prayer with energy and activity and concern and care uh, and giving attention to every part of the body in the salat. From this hadith, the shaykh mentions a number of points. The first of them, that in it is an indication or a proof that it is mustahab to make sajda in this, in this particular position while making sure that all the parts of the body are far away from the other parts yani that the hands and arms are not uh, touching the sides of the body nor any other part of the body touching another part and that in this particular manner of spreading the parts of the body far apart is especially uh, required in a sujood as has been mentioned in another hadith reported by Imam Muslim on the authority of Al-Bara radiallahu anhu 
who reported it or attributed it to the Prophet وسلم, that he said إِذَا سَجَدْتَ فَدَعَ كَفَّيْكَ وَرْفَعَ مِرْفَقِيكَ That if any one of you makes prostration then they should put their palms down and they should raise their elbows up not down on the ground like this elbows on the ground but they should be up they should be up put their hands down and raise their elbows up uh, in the hadith that we have mentioned in this chapter here the hadith that we just mentioned this uh, description of spreading the hands and raising the arms and putting the hands flat is mentioned in general but in the hadith reported in Sahih Muslim it's mentioned specifically in sajda إِذَا سَجَدْتَ yani if a person performs prostration then they should do this whereas in the hadith here it's not mentioned that this is in sajda but the reporter of the hadith radiallahu anhu he said كَانَ إِذَا صَلَّى and whenever he used to pray he used to do so but actually from the hadith in Sahih Muslim from Al-Bara radiallahu anhu we understand that this was his manner not in the whole of the prayer but it was specifically in reference to a sujood or sajda and this the shaykh says uh, is due to the fact that we take the hadith which is mutlaq or general unrestricted and we understand it in light of the hadith which is muqayyad restricted or specific when there are two hadith one of them general and the other one more specific then the general hadith should be understood in light of the more specific hadith and this is called in mustalah hadith al-mutlaq and al-muqayyid al-mutlaq that which is general not, spe- not specifying exactly the matter and one muqayyid which specifies and restricts it to a certain manner or a certain time or a certain place and so on in this case it restricts this particular manner or this instruction to the position of sajda it restricts it whereas in the previous hadith is a salah it's general this hadith makes it more clear that this command is in reference to a sajda uh, also he said in this hadith that it contains many benefits and points of wisdom and from amongst them is that this manner of prostration shows it is a visible, visible manifestation of the activeness of the Prophet and his concern and attention that he gave to his salat and also from amongst the wisdom of this, uh, those points of wisdom uh, or benefits from this hadith is that uh, if anyone prostrates in this manner uh, leaning on every member of the body that's required in sujood, the seven parts of the body then in that case every one of those seven parts would have gotten their share of, the, of this act of worship as sajda then the shaykh says uh, that some of the scholars of fiqh and from amongst them are the Hanabila or the scholars of the Mazhab of Al-Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahimahullah said that this ruling of prostrating in this manner is specific to men to the exclusion of women because the women are expected to protect themselves and to do everything in a way that their body would not be showing uh, this is their يعني, reasoning for doing so and from the uh, you would say intellectual point of view they reasoned that 
this is not applicable to the women for this reason. And it is true that the woman is expected always to be concerned and careful and give attention that her body is not shown or on display uh, in every time and in every case. Uh, but in this case, since it's an act of worship, then there should be a proof from the sunnah for so. Otherwise, the acts of worship are tawqifiyah. They are based on texts from Quran and sunnah, not based on analogy or reason. But they should be based on text, and if there is a text, then there is no room for analogy or reasoning or otherwise. Uh, so they also brought as a proof for their opinion that which has been reported in the Marasil of Abu Dawood, rahimahullah. And the Marasil are those hadith which are mursal, that means they have a break in the chain, uh, such as a tabi'i narrates a hadith in which he says the Prophet said or did something and he doesn't mention the Sahabi who he heard it from and the Tabi'een they didn't meet the Prophet ﷺ in order to narrate from him that means there's a break in the chain who did he hear it from Dani? or even Dani, in some cases Mursal may refer to Sahabi who heard a hadith but he didn't hear it from the Prophet ﷺ. maybe he heard it from another Sahabi or even possibly though it's unlikely he may have even heard it from a Tabi'i students of Sahaba if he had been a young Sahabi, it's possible that he could have heard it from a Tabi. In any case, Mursal Hadith means that the Hadith has a break in the chain, usually after the Tabi'i and also possibly after the Sahabi, it could be. Uh, and that Hadith is normally considered to be weak if it is a Mursal Hadith from a Tabi'i. If it's a Mursal Hadith from a Sahabi, then in general, it is more likely to be considered to be authentic. Uh, um, whereas the Mursal Hadith from the Tabi'i is normally considered for the most part to be weak except some of the scholars said the Mursal Hadith of Kibar Tabi'in that means the major scholars of the Tabi'in and anyway this is a yani, somewhat technical discussion we don't want to go into too much detail about it but just to give an idea what is Mursal Hadith uh, and this Mursal Hadith was reported in the Marasil a book of Mursal Hadith by Imam Abu Dawood and he said that Yazid ibn Habib said uh, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam marra ala imra'ataini tusalliyan that he passed by two women praying that is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam passed by these women while they were praying فَقَالَ إِذَا سَجَدْتُمَا فَدُمَّا بَعْدَ اللَّحْمْ إِلَى بَعْدْ فَإِنَّ الْمَرْأَةَ لَيْسَتْ فِي ذَلِكَ كَالرَّجُلْ uh, according to this Mursal Hadith, he said that when the Prophet saw his women praying, he told them that when you prostrate, that you should uh, bring your body together, close together. Uh, for verily, the woman in this matter of prostration is not like the men. But this Hadith is not authentic, it is da'if. Therefore, it is not really an acceptable proof for so. And in fact, as some of the scholars, such as Shaykh al-Bani, mentioned, that there is no authentic hadith concerning differentiation between the women and the men in sajda and in general in salat the prayer of the women is exactly the same as the prayer of the men unless there is an authentic hadith showing a distinction and in this case there is no authentic hadith for such therefore uh, the correct opinion is that the prostration of the women is like the prostration of the men without any difference between them Hadith number 95, the hadith of, is concerning uh, praying in sandals or shoes or any, yeah, anything that one wears on their feet. 
عن أبي مسلمة سعيد بن يزيد قال سألت أنس بن مالك رضي الله عنه أكان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يصلي فينا عليه قال نعم يعني أبو مسلمة he said I asked أنس بن مالك رضي الله عنه did the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم used to pray in his sandals يعني did he on occasion uh, pray in his sandals and uh, Anas radiallahu anhu said Naam, yes he did So this is an established sunnah in this hadith The Shaykh says that Anas al-Malik was asked about the Prophet وسلم, Praying in his sandals So that he would be an example يعني They asked to know if he did it Then we will follow his example And Anas responded that yes he had done so uh, He used to pray in his sandals And therefore it is One of the sunnahs of the Prophet وسلم, That one may pray in their sandals in their shoes or whatever they wear on their feet. Uh, from this hadith, the Shaykh mentions three points. The first of them that it is mustahab to pray in one's sandals, since it was the practice of the Prophet ﷺ. It is mustahab, commendable or recommended, and on occasion, not on, not in every instance. Number two, that it is permissible to enter the masjid with one's shoes or sandals after cleaning the bottom of one's shoes from any kind of impure substance, impurities, or any filthy matter. One should scrape their feet on the ground before entering the masjid. Number three, uh, that if someone thinks that perhaps their shoes are not unclean, and if they are not sure, Maybe they scrape their feet, but they still think perhaps there's still some impurities there. Uh, then this does not remove the original state, the original state of purification uh, of the shoes. And that is that originally the shoes are clean. If in the course of one's walking some uncleanliness got on it, and you tried to scrape it off, and then we understand that it returns to its original state of cleanliness and it's permissible to pray in them and it's permissible to enter the masjid. Here the shaykh says that there is a point of benefit here that we should mention and it is very important uh, related to this matter of not just praying in one's sandals but entering the masjid with one's sandals or shoes. And the shaykh says the salat in one's sandals and entering the masjid with shoes or sandals on has become a issue, uh, a problematic issue, <laughs> definitely a problem. Because in our day and time now, they have very fancy, beautiful, expensive rugs. And that time, they used to pray on sand. The masjid, you know, the floor of the masjid was from sand. So he said that the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, which indicates clearly, without any doubt, that it is permissible to pray in one's shoes and to enter the masjid. With that, this is the clear that which is clearly indicated in the Sunnah. Not only is it permissible, but it's mustahab, it's commendable, it's recommended, and rewardable to do so. Uh, and this is a Sunnah. The Sheikh says that we should protect and preserve. We should not allow it to be abandoned. It should be continued. It should not be lost. Uh, because the Prophet ﷺ mentioned in a hadith that's reported in the Sunan of Abu Dawood from Shaddad ibn Aws radiallahu anhu, he said, Khalifu al-Yahud. Differ with the Yahud. فَإِنَّهُمْ لَا يُصَلُّونَ فِي نِعَالِهِمْ وَلَا خِفَافِهِمْ 
Yani, this is a command from the Prophet ﷺ that we should be different from the Jews who didn't pray in their sandals nor in their khufs. They did not used to pray in them. He said, differ from them. That means he is ordering us to do so. It's not just something permissible to do. It is a sunnah that should be kept alive. And the Prophet ﷺ ordered us to do so. On occasion, we should pray in our shoes. The Prophet ﷺ also said in a hadith that's reported by Abu Dawood on the authority of Abi Sa'id al-Qudri radiallahu anhu إِذَا جَاءَ أَحَدُكُمُ الْمَسْجِدِ فَلْيَنْظُرُ But if anyone of you comes to the masjid, then look. فَإِنْ رَأَى فِينَ عَلَيْهِ خَذَرًا قَذَرًا أَوْ أَذًا فَلْيَمْسَحْهُ وَلْيُصَلِّ فِيهِمَا If anyone is about to enter the masjid, they should look at their sandals and see if there's any filthy matter. Uh, any unclean matter or something harmful, then they should rub it. Yani, rub their feet, their shoes on the ground to remove that matter. Well, you and then they should pray in their shoes. And this is the command. Well, you means lam al amr means that this is a command that you must do it. Of course, the command here is for mustahab because it's not on every occasion that the Prophet ﷺ prayed in his shoes. But we understand here that this is something recommended, it's commendable, it's mustahab, not only permissible, but it's encouraged and rewardable to do so. And there are many other authentic, clear authentic hadith from the Prophet ﷺ showing that it is legislated to pray in one's sandals or shoes after removing any uncleanliness or impurity uh, from those shoes. Uh, This is from one side. That it is sunnah, it is established, and it is something recommended to do. As for the generality of the people and some of those who have a little knowledge of the deen, who are very fanatical, uh, they would argue this matter. And some of them see or believe that reviving this sunnah, they consider it to be as a sinful act or something unacceptable, even though it is clearly established in the sunnah. And they would ne- never remain silent and allow anyone uh, to pray in their shoes. Even it was reported to me recently by one of our brothers uh, who was in London. And he went, not, not in London, I think in Birmingham, someplace in England. And because he has a problem, physical problem, handicap, and is not able to take off his shoes easily, he went into a masjid, it was time to pray, and he went into a masjid hesitatingly for fear that maybe the people would kick him out if they saw him coming in with his shoes. And he wasn't going in the masjid with his shoes just to establish the sunnah, but out of necessity, because he was handicapped. And the people, before he could get a few steps in the masjid, stopped him and asked him, what do you think you're doing? This is a clean place, and that's filthy shoes that you're wearing. Get out of here. And they kicked him out, even though he told them that I'm handicapped and I want to pray, and they told him, get out. And this is what we find all over the world today, even in the Muslim countries, if anyone attempted to go in the masjid with their shoes on, for sure there will be some people who will stop you. And some of them may even attack you physically if you refuse to take your shoes off to get out of the masjid. So we find that some people consider this clearly established sunnah as a sinful act or something unacceptable. Uh, and if you remind them of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ to this effect, they will tell you that this was for one time or for the past, this was yani, for another time or another era, not for us now and today. It is as though the Sharia, the law of Muhammad the Messenger of Allah, came 
at one time and after that it was abrogated and exchanged with something else at another time. Uh, then the Shaykh says that it is as though they didn't know that the Sharia of Allah is intact and in force until Allah inherits the earth and those who are upon it, yeah, and until Yawm Qiyamah. Here the Shaykh closes by saying that which is very, very important uh, that whoever wants to follow the Sunnah of the Prophet in this matter or in any other matter, uh, which the establishment of that Sunnah by doing something or leaving something uh, would not necessarily distract from or destroy Islam that the person should consider. Yeah, and if you want to establish a Sunnah that if you did it or if you left it, it will not affect your Islam, it will not take you out of Islam or it does it, it's not a requirement of Islam that you do so, but it is a Sunnah. If you want to do it, then you should first consider. If doing that thing or leaving that thing would be the cause of fitna, evil and harm and disruption and, and confusion amongst the people uh, more than the benefit that you are trying to achieve by establishing the sunnah, if it would cause more harm and problems and trouble and fitna amongst the people, uh, then what is legislated, uh, the sunnah is legislated in order to bring about benefit. If the harm that you will bring about by establishing the sunnah is more than the benefit, then you should leave that sunnah for the sake of not making uh, fitna in the community. And this is very important uh, that we should consider in any sunnah that we want to establish amongst the people, we should first consider what would be the effect of establishing that sunnah and if we find that it will cause more harm, that it, perhaps it will cause the people to argue and fight with one another and even sometimes those arguments lead to people being physically attacked and some people may be killed, then it is wiser to leave that sunnah to another time and perhaps try to educate the people first so that when that sunnah is established uh, and it is understood by the people, then it will not cause problems. The next hadith, hadith number 91, this is concerning uh, the carrying of a child in salat or holding a child in salat is reported from Abi Qatada al-Ansari radiallahu anhu and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kana yusalli wa huwa hamil umama bint Zainab binti Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam li Abi al-Aas ibn Rabi' ibn Abd Shams yani that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the Messenger of Allah he used to pray on occasion of Abi Al-Aq ibn Rabi Abd Shams يعني the parents of Umama was Zainab the daughter of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and Abi Al-Aq the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam it is described that when he used to carry this child فَإِذَا سَجَدَ وَضَعَهَا that when he used to prostrate he would put her down وَإِذَا قَامَ حَمَلَهَا and if he would stand up then he would pick her up again. And when he was prostrating, he would put her down so that he could prostrate fully. And when he would get up from the prostration to stand up again, he would carry her again. The Shaykh says in the general meaning of this hadith that the Prophet ﷺ was known for his uh, mercy, sympathy, kindness, compassion, uh, with, especially with the young and the old. 
the young children and the elderly. He was especially known for his kindness and compassion and sympathy with them, as well as with the poor and the rich. Yani the Prophet was generally known for his mercy, kindness and, and sympathy. Uh, and there is nothing that indicates the greatness and the nobleness of his character like his carrying one of his grandchildren while he was in Salat. Yani he was concerned enough about that child that he even yani was expressing his sympathy and love uh, for the child even while he was in one of the greatest acts of worship, Salat. Uh, and he used to put her on his shoulders. He was carrying her on his shoulders when he was standing. And if he bowed or prostrated, he would put her down on the ground for that moment while he was in ruku or in sujood. And in this, he says, is an indication uh, of the kindness and sympathy that the Muslims should dis- should display, and that uh, a tasheel or being easy and lenient has been legislated for the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Yani harshness and roughness is not from that the legislation of the Islamic Sharia, and it is not from the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But yani leniency and kindness and, and sympathy and compassion is what has been legislated in the Sharia Islamia and the Sunnah of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Here the Shaykh mentions the ikhtilaf or difference of opinion of the scholars. Uh, Ibn Daqiq al-Eid mentioned a number of explanations uh, that are somewhat far-fetched in his explanation of this hadith. And from amongst them he said that this has been abrogated. And in another case he mentioned the claims or the explanations of some of the people. Another of them was that this was especially for the Prophet yani that other people shouldn't do so, carrying the child in salat. And in another case, he mentioned another explanation that this was only out of necessity, that the Prophet ﷺ did this out of necessity. We also mentioned other explanations which are weaker than those which he has mentioned here. Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi said that the scholars differed in the explanation of this hadith, and that which he felt was the closest um, Yani, or that which he said was the reason for causing them to try to explain this hadith was that many of the scholars couldn't accept the fact that the Prophet ﷺ was doing all these things while he was praying picking up the child and putting her down and picking up again and putting her down and many of the scholars said that any extra action, action in the prayer if it, so many extra actions outside of the salat itself invalidates the prayer so for this reason many of the scholars tried to explain then how was he doing this picking up and putting down the child and they gave their various explanations Al-Imam Nawawi says uh, after mentioning some of these explanations that the scholars gave he said that all of these explanations are rejected all of them are rejected they are false and rejected explanations that have no basis in evidence they have no evidence for such explanations and what he said is clear to us is that that which is correct and that which the uh, those scholars who really examined carefully the sunnah and stuck to it uh, should follow and, what, and that which they expressed yani, as the meaning or the correct explanation of this hadith uh, is that this movement, such movement in the salat is allowed uh, yani that what the Prophet did picking up and putting the child down such movement as this in the salat 
is permissible, is jaiz from the imam, whether the person is the imam, a follower of the imam, or praying alone. And that the Prophet ﷺ did so to clarify for us its permissibility. To make it known that it's permissible. Uh, additionally, he says that the Prophet ﷺ sometimes used to go up or come down the steps of the mimbar to show the people the salat, to demonstrate them the salat. He used to sometimes go up on the mimbar or come down from it in order to demonstrate the manner of prayer. He also used to open the door for Aisha radiallahu anha while he was in salat. If she came he would open the door for her uh, and other things which do not invalidate the salat. And from this we understand that such movements, slight movements, yani, uh, that the Prophet ﷺ, that it's indicated and proven that he did while he was praying, that these movements are permissible in the prayer if there's a need to do so. And if the, if the child is there and the person has to carry the child, there's no harm in doing so. Picking up and putting down the child uh, and so on. From this hadith, the Shaykh mentions three points. The first of them, that uh, these movements that have been mentioned in the authentic hadith by the Prophet ﷺ are permissible in the obligatory as well as voluntary prayers whether by the Imam, the follower or the person praying alone even if it is not an absolute necessity to do so and this is the most correct opinion of the scholars and the second point is the permissibility uh, of touching and carrying someone such as a child which it is very likely that that child may uh, be deep, uh, uh, يعني, um, may have urine on their body or on their clothing. يعني, even though you may think that the child may be defiled with uh, urine or such a, or simil- uh, something similar to that, that it's permissible uh, to carry or to touch such a child. Since the original ruling is tahara, يعني, unless we are sure that the child is defiled, uh, then our يعني, thought of the possibility that the child may be defiled is not sufficient to prohibit us from touching that child or from carrying that child. The third thing he says is this hadith is an indication of the humility of the Prophet وسلم, and his leniency uh, and mercy and kindness. Uh, these are some of the aspects of the character of the Prophet then the shaykh mentions uh, from this hadith not the ahkam but a point of discussion he says that one of the benefits or a beneficial point concerning this hadith is that some of the scholars have divided the movements in the salat to four different types and this is after examining carefully the text of the hadith and the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, they divided the actions that one may do in prayer into four divisions. The first division, those things which are haram, which invalidate the salat, and that means uh, those actions, many actions that are done one after another without any need or necessity and without any benefit from it. Yani someone doing a lot of actions outside of the prayer one after another, 
and those actions are not necessary nor is there any benefit in doing them that this is forbidden and it invalidates the prayer the second group they said the second type is that which is makruh it is makruh but it doesn't invalidate the salat and that is slight actions that are done without any need and there is no benefit in doing so and yani there is no benefit in the salat for doing so uh, such as someone playing with their clothing or touching or rubbing their body or moving their uh, eyeglasses or such things as this yani these slight movements that there is no need for doing it and there is no benefit for the salat in doing so because these are negation of al-khushu'a in the salat part of khushu'a is not only concentration but also calmness of the body is part of al-khushu'a uh, so there is no need for doing such things and these actions do not invalidate the salat but they said this is the division of that which is makruh detestable or undesirable the third division are those actions which are permissible mubah and these are slight actions which are done for some need uh, and he says perhaps this is this division it is the one uh, that the actions of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam fall under uh, such as his carrying a child or going up in the mimbar or coming down from the mimbar during the salat uh, or opening the door and such because these things he used to do for some need and to clarify the permissibility of doing so there are any small slight actions that you do for a need or for some benefit yani such as uh, he is going up in the mimbar so that the people could see him how he is praying to learn the prayer and the fourth category are those which are legislated mashru'a not haram nor makru' nor mubah but that which is legislated that a person, sh- person should do in the salat uh, these legislated actions are those things which are related to some beneficial act for the prayer connected to the prayer such as the person stepping forward while they are praying to a more preferable position and if somebody stepped out of the line to go and make wudu and they left the space in the line the person in the line behind them may step up into their position this is an action in the prayer that there is some benefit for the salat and directed to or related or connected to the salat itself uh, or someone moving to the side if someone moved out of the prayer to close the space in the line these actions uh, which are connected and related directly uh, and of some benefit to the salat itself not only are they permissible but it is required it is legislated that one should do so some people if they see a space in the line they won't move because they believe you cannot move in the prayer but this movement is required for the benefit of the salat therefore it is legislated and is required that person should do so uh, also under this category those actions which are praiseworthy or that we are commanded to do as I already mentioned such as stepping forward or back uh, in the salat such as the salat al-khawf yani the one line when they prayed after they prayed one rakah with the prophet they would leave and the other people would come and take their place or they would step back and the, and the line behind them would come forward and step up uh, as well as those actions which are of necessity such as if someone's life was endangered while you were praying and you came to know so such as you saw the child getting ready to jump off a table then it is of necessity that you leave the salat in order to save the child 
this kind of thing that is of necessity or of benefit to the salat, then these come under the last category of not that which is just permit, permissible, but that which is required or legislated for the benefit of the salat. The last hadith that we have, it is the last hadith of Sifat al-Salat, the description of the prayer, hadith number 92, the hadith uh, of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu an Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal i'tadilu fissujood wala yabsut ahadukum zira'ayhi in bisat al-kalb yani Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said i'tadilu fissujood that a person should in their prostration they translated here as uh, be straight in the frustrations, but perhaps uh, it's difficult to translate more properly. It's probably said that uh, to prostrate in the manner where every part of the body is uh, in the way that has been legislated in the Sunnah. Yani the back, um, the forehead should be down, where the lower part of the body should be up, the palms should be on the ground and separated, the arms and elbows should be up, and so on. Means that you should be in the position as it has been legislated in the Sunnah. Not sinking the stomach or bringing the body parts together and so on. This is Atidal in Sujood. Then the second part of the hadith is somewhat of an explanation. And no one should put their uh, forearms on the ground like the way a dog lays down on the ground. Or like a dog puts their uh, forearms down on the ground. The general meaning of this hadith, the Shaykh says that this is a command from the Prophet ﷺ to perform sujood with i'tidal, yani in its proper proportions, every part of the body in its proper place. Uh, and that is that the person who is praying should be in a very good yani, uh, position of sujood, in an, in an attractive and proper manner. Uh, such that their, their palms should be on the ground and their forearms should be raised up and their forearms should be separated from their sides should not be close to their sides but far apart uh, when they are in this position of prostration and this manner of prostrating is an indication of activity, energy and eagerness in the salat this is the beautiful manner of prostration that allows every part of the members of sujood to take their portion or their share of the ibadah. Also he said in this hadith is the prohibition from spreading one's forearms in sujood as the dog spreads their forearms because this is an indication of laziness and boredom with the salat uh, and also in it is a resemblance when a person should be in one of the preferable or best positions of ibadah, sajda. The most honorable position of ibadah is sajda. And in that position, uh, it is unacceptable that a person should resemble the filthiest and lowest of animals, the dog, uh, while they are in the most honorable position that a human being uh, can be in, in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This resemblance between uh, the human being when they are in this position with a dog is يعني, unacceptable uh, and should be avoided. The Shaykh mentions three points from this hadith or three rulings. The first of them that it is legislated to make sujood in this manner with i'tidal, يعني, in the best 
possible position as it has been legislated in the Sunnah of the Prophet And number two, the prohibition of spreading one's arms or forearms on the ground while you're in prostration because this is an indication of laziness and also uh, resemblance or comparison or similarity between the sitting of the dog uh, and that resemblance or comparison with those things which are filthy, lowly or otherwise uh, should any resemblance to such things should be avoided and number three uh, also from this hadith we understand that it is makruh or undesirable or detestable to resemble animals especially while one is in the course of uh, any act of worship and not only dogs as mentioned in this hadith but the resemblance of any animal while in the process of performing an act of worship is makruh that's the last of the points the shaykh just mentions one thing here a side point uh, which uh, he says is a very fine point uh, and it is that it has been reported uh, that there is a command from the legislator to be different from the despicable or lowly animals as well as any animals in general while a person is in salat The last comment uh, the Shaykh is mentioning here about resemblance uh, while in the act of Salat resembling any, any animals, whether the lowly animals or otherwise uh, he said that there are a number of uh, hadith which indicate the prohibition of resemblance of animals in the, in the, while in the performance of Salat and from amongst them is that a person looks around as does the fox or that a person spreads their forearms on the ground as does the, those uh, four-legged beasts or the sitting like the sitting of a dog or the uh, pointing with one's hands as the tails of the horse yani, this is the indication as done by some people when they make taslim in the salat they do their hands like this uh, and the, the what do you call sitting down 
يعني, or going down into the sitting position as does a camel and other such uh, يعني, uh, resemblances between any animals should be avoided uh, in the acts of salat because the person when they are performing salat they are in communication with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so it is expected that that person should be in the most honorable and the best uh, position uh, and the best description that they can be in while they are in the performance of this act of worship this is the end of Kitab Sifat al-Salat or Bab Sifat al-Salat and there are still actually some chapters remaining uh, related to matters uh, surrounding the prayer or different aspects of the prayer but this is the end of the chapter or the sub-chapter the description of the Salat of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika Ashadu an la ilaha ila anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk If there are any questions or corrections or comments from the brothers uh, after we take this question from the sisters Okay what about the child's reward? No, it's general. It's general. Allah knows best, but it's general. I mean, the ruling here is not specifically related to a girl, but uh, it, it, it happened that the Prophet was carrying his granddaughter Zainab on that particular occasion, so that was, that's what was mentioned in the hadith. But the carrying of a child in general is permissible. Uh, without any doubt. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Can one hold a child in their arms also when praying, and should this be a regular thing? And if a child runs in front of you during salat, what should you do? That is, uh, push, raise the child, push away the child, etc. The hadith here seems to be general that the holding the scholars uh, such as uh, here Shaykh Abdullah uh, in his explanation of this hadith didn't mention the uh, restriction to carrying the child on one's shoulders but in general mentioned the holding of the child so we understand from this that uh, this is a general ruling that one is allowed to hold a child although Al-Imam Bukhari rahimahullah, in his chapter heading mentioned uh, the child being carried on one's neck which in that case he was being specific describing the actual action that was reported in that hadith the Prophet was holding a child or carrying the child Zainab on his neck but in fact it is general and it is understood that the holding of the child and similar actions uh, are permissible if there is a need to do so uh, and or, or if there is some benefit for the salat in doing so that is permissible and that means that yes holding the child in the arms inshallah there is no harm in doing so it should be a regular thing it shouldn't be a regular thing unless it is you know regularly necessary yeah. and if, it's, if it cannot be avoided if the child uh, is, has no one to attend to him or her and it's time for the salat then there's no harm to do so but it's not something that we should make as a part of the salat whenever we go to pray we should go and try to find a child to carry uh, it shouldn't be a regular thing in that sense 
But if it is regularly necessary, then there is no harm to do it. It is done out of necessity in that case. And there is no harm to do that which is done out of necessity, insha'Allah. If a child runs in front of you during Salat, or anyone walks in front of you or runs in front of you during the Salat, you should not allow them to do so if you can prevent them. Whether it's a small child or a big child or an adult, it's not permissible to allow anyone to walk in front of you while you're praying. If it is the congregation of prayer, then the people who are behind the Imam come under the ruling of the Imam. If the Imam has a sutra in front of him while he is leading the prayer, then there is no harm if someone walks in front of anyone who is in the congregation behind the Imam, as long as they don't walk in front of the Imam. But if you are praying alone, then you should be using a sutra and you shouldn't allow anyone to walk between you and that sutra if you can stop them. Even if it's a child, they should be stopped as is reported in the Sahih of Muslim, the hadith of Abu Sayyid al-Khudri radiallahu anhu, uh, it is reported that he was in Mecca in Masjid al-Haram and a young boy tried to walk in front of him and he put his hand out to stop him. Uh, that young boy looked around and didn't find any other way to go, so he attempted again and Abu Sayyid al-Khudri hit him. The boy went from the masjid and went to the leader of the Muslims and complained against Abu Sayyid al-Khudri radiallahu anhu who followed him after completing the prayer uh, and answered the complaint against him by mentioning the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that if anyone is praying and someone tries to walk in front of them they should stop them and if they insist they should fight them for the one who tries to walk in front of you while you're praying that one is a shaitan or that one has with them a shaitan according to different narration of the hadith so uh, Abu Sayyid al-Qudri understood from this hadith that if anyone insists on walking from you, you should stop them or you should fight them yeah, and prevent them even, even physically if you are able to do so uh, and that included yeah, it was a young boy he said a young boy who tried to walk in front of him and that took place in al-Masjid al-Haram in Mecca which means that even in Mecca and Medina there is a requirement to pray with a sutra and there is a prohibition of walking in front of someone who is praying if they are praying alone. If they are praying in congregation, inshallah, there is no harm in doing so. And Allah knows best. Any other comments or questions? Naam. Naam? Sutra. Sutra, it means something that you... Sutra, yeah, I mean something that you uh, place as a barrier in front of you. At the place of your prostration so that it will mark the area of your prayer so if anyone saw you praying they will go around behind that sutra not in between you and the sutra it is obligatory on the person who is praying to pray with a, with a sutra and it is prohibited for anyone to walk in front of someone who is praying with a sutra and if the person who is praying has no sutra then the first blame is on the one who is praying for praying without a sutra and the second blame is on the one who walks in front of them even though they don't have a sutra because it is prohibited to do so and this is the most correct opinion that it is wajib to pray with a sutra if anyone is praying alone when they are praying in jama'ah the person should to the best of their ability, practice the sunnah of spreading their arms to the extent that you are able to. Some of the scholars said that if you are praying in jama'ah and spreading your arms would cause harm to the people who are beside you, then you should not do so. Yani you shouldn't spread your arms to the extent that you cause harm to those who are beside you. 
Sheikh Muhammad ibn Salih Uthaymeen, in his explanation of Salat, said that when he was asked about this question, he said that the spreading of the arms is Sunnah, and the harming of another Muslim is at least makruh, if not haram. So no one should do something that is Sunnah at the expense of falling into that which is makruh or haram. So to the extent that you are able to spread your arms, to that extent you may do so. And when you are praying alone, the sunnah or nafu prayers, when no one is next to you, then you may spread your arms more so. I need to fulfill the sunnah uh, as much as possible. Ma'am. They came late to the congregation of prayer and they joined in the congregation. After the congregation, after the Imam is finished, they complete their prayer sitting down without standing up. I never heard of this. I don't know. I didn't notice it. But perhaps, perhaps it is the opinion of those people who don't uh, pay careful attention to the Sunnah. Uh, because uh, as far as I know, there is no proof for such that anyone should complete their prayer if they missed any part of it by sitting, not standing. But it is indicated in the Sunnah that a person may pray sitting. The voluntary prayers or Sunnah prayers, not the obligatory prayer. They may pray sitting but that the reward for that prayer sitting is half of the reward of the one standing. And that is, the person who is capable and able to stand, they pray sunnah prayers or nafu prayers sitting, the reward would be half only of the reward of standing. But if the person is unable to stand, they are incapable of standing, if they pray sitting, they are allowed to do so and their reward is complete. As for completing the obligatory prayer sitting, uh, it's not permissible to pray the obligatory prayer in part or in whole sitting. If the person is capable of standing, it's obligatory to stand, as it is reported in the authentic hadith, uh, when the Prophet was asked by a person who was sick uh, about prayer, and he said, you are ordered to pray standing. But if you're not able, then pray sitting, and if you're not able, then pray lying on your side. This is a clear indication that praying sitting in the obligatory prayer is not allowed. It's not allowed, except for the person who is not capable. This is absolutely wrong, uh, unless the person cannot stand. If the person was elderly or sick, and they started praying standing, but the, the, the sickness or their condition overcame them, and they weren't able to complete the prayer standing, that's different. The Prophet ﷺ, in his uh, last part of his life, he used to pray in the night prayer long, long prayers, and he used to sit for part of that prayer, and stand for part of it, according to his ability. And he used to stand as much as he could, and he used to sit for that portion that was necessary. Otherwise, uh, sitting in the obligatory prayers is not allowed for the person who is capable of standing. In the voluntary prayers is permissible, according to me. Now, any other comments? <laughs> Does the Prophet ﷺ have family alive in Medina? He has relatives, for sure he has descendants. So many. Too many. Some of them may be in Medina. I don't know specifically in Medina, there must be some in Medina. But certainly, all over the Muslim world, not only in Saudi Arabia, but also in other countries, 
there are people who are descendants uh, of the Prophet some of them are very famous people who make it known that they are from the family of the Prophet and some of them are not famous people who don't make it known you want to see them but let me say this even if they are really descendants of the Prophet directly or indirectly there is no benefit in such unless they follow his sunnah just as the children or the offspring or the wives or spouses of the prophets and anbiya uh, it would not help them to enter paradise or get any reward from Allah if they didn't obey the prophet their father or their husband or whoever so also the descendants near or far from the prophet if they are not following his sunnah and observing his sharia then there is no benefit and in seeing them you will not see anything except an ordinary person some of them in fact, unfortunately, some of them are the worst of the Muslims who don't practice anything of Islam or anything of the Sunnah. If they are those who are really practicing the deen, alhamdulillah, then maybe you might want to see them just to see a descendant of the Prophet But you don't want to see those who are not practicing and there are many and especially the most famous of them are the ones that are not practicing the deen. Some of them you have heard of but perhaps you didn't know their claim to be descendants of the Prophet and we don't want to mention their names because we already said that they are not the best of people, so leave their names alone.